You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome to another episode of Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson. And Tonight we are going to be continuing in our study of the Apostles' Bible. This will be part two of our study on the Septuagint text of the Old Testament. Now, in part one of this study, we ended up going for about two hours, and I try to keep these podcast episodes down to an hour, so I may not be able to go over all the information that I have left to share with you about the Septuagint in this one episode, so there may end up being a part three to the Septuagint study. The entire study that we're doing on the Apostles' Bible will have this study we're doing on the Septuagint in it. And finally, after we finish the Septuagint, we will be going over what's called the Textus Receptus. And the Textus Receptus is the Greek text of the New Testament. And there's more to it than that, but... That's what we will be covering in the final part of the study on the Apostles' Bible. So for tonight, we are going to go ahead and jump into our subject, and I am going to try to go as fast as I can without uh, making it where hard to follow me, and I'm also going to do my very best to cover as much information as I can in the least amount of time. I'm going to try my best not to go for two hours again tonight, but I can't make any promises because of the amount of information we have to cover. 
but we will not be going over two hours. That I can promise you. So without any further ado, let's jump into tonight's topic. When we ended our discussion last night on the Greek Septuagint text of the Old Testament, we were looking at Old Testament quotations that were found in the New Testament, and we were comparing what it said in the New Testament quotations of the passages with what the English translation of the Old Testament that we have today based on the Masoretic text actually says and I was giving examples where it is obvious even when reading the passages in English that the New Testament writer is quoting from the Septuagint and not the Masoretic text. And our first example tonight will be from the book of James, chapter 4, verse 6. And James 4, 6 says this. It says, Wherefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, James is uh, quoting from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 34 there. And if we go and look at Proverbs 3, 34, it says, Surely he scoffs at the scoffers, but he gives grace to the lowly. Now, that is obviously a huge difference between what James quoted in the New Testament and what the Old Testament that we have now in our English translations based on the Masoretic text. It is very, very different. And the second example that I want to look at tonight is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 21. And it says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, learning upon the top of his staff. And he's quoting here from Genesis 47, verse 31. And if we look in our Bibles, Genesis 47, 31 says this. It says, And he said, Swear unto me. And he swore unto him. 
and Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. The third example we want to look at is also from the book of Hebrews. It'll be from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. And this passage of Hebrews is actually quoting from Psalms. It's quoting from Psalms 118, verse 6. And Hebrews 13, 6 says, So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now, Psalms 118.6 in our Bibles says this. It says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? So, in this instance, in Hebrews 13.6, when it's quoting from book of Psalms chapter 118 verse 6 it's actually almost the same quote I mean the same passage it's the quotation is very close to what it says in Psalms 118 in our English Bible so sometimes the difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic is that the Septuagint either has more text in a given verse than the Masoretic text does, and at other times, it has less text. An example is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, where it says, For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Isaiah 40, verse 3 is the passage that was quoted in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, and Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So, it's a little different in our English translations, but you can still get the you can still get the just of what Matthew chapter 3 verse 3 is quoting from reading Isaiah 43 in, in our Old Testament based on the Masoretic. However, the Septuagint in this instance, like every other instance of the New Testament quoting an Old Testament passage, the Septuagint says exactly the same thing 
as the quotation in Matthew 3.3. The Septuagint says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, in a few places, the difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text is significant as to what it says about the character of God. Now, one such place is the prophecy in Isaiah about the hard-heartedness of the Jews. This prophecy is found in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, and Jesus quotes this prophecy to his apostles in Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, where he says, For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. The way Jesus quotes that passage, the blame is squarely on the Jews. They themselves have closed their eyes and shut up their ears. They have refused to understand so they could be healed. That's the sense in which the Septuagint reads in Isaiah chapter 6, 10 as well. It says, For the heart of the people has become insensitive, and their ears hear with difficulty, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return, and I should heal them. However, in the Masoretic text, Isaiah 6.10 reads this way. It says, Make the hearts of this people dull, and their eyes, I mean, and their ears, excuse me, and their ears heavy, and shut up their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Now, for much of my life, I struggled with this passage in Isaiah. It makes it seem that God is presenting them from believing because he doesn't want to heal them. Now, the Septuagint makes it very clear that the problem doesn't lie with God. But the problem is with the Jews themselves. Their unbelief keeps them from turning back to God and being healed. I didn't include this verse among the, the four passages quoted by Jesus where I said it makes a difference in meaning whether you go with the Septuagint or the Masoretic text. But I really should have because there is a considerable difference in meaning here as to who is responsible for the Jews' unbelief. 
As I mentioned previously, this episode also provides strong evidence that Jesus spoke Greek as his main language. Here he is speaking in private to his disciples. Now, why would Jesus quote the Septuagint to them if he was conversing with them in Aramaic? Isn't it far more likely that he was conversing in Greek? I mean, sure, it's possible that he was speaking in Aramaic and then translating the Greek of the Septuagint on the fly into Aramaic, but there's nothing in the text that indicates that. Now, in the entrance of full disclosure, I should mention to you that the Apostle John quotes from this passage in Isaiah 6.10, and his quotation is actually more similar to the Masoretic text. Now, this is in John chapter 12, verse 39 and 40, and This isn't the same event as the one recorded in Matthew. Jesus isn't the speaker here. Rather, the Apostle John is simply quoting the passage to his readers. It is further evidence of the textual situation that existed in the first century. Although Jesus and the Apostles heavily prefer the Septuagint over the Masoretic text, They don't have any qualms about quoting from the Masoretic text. So neither text had the exclusive claim of being the only word of God. The influence of the Septuagint on the New Testament goes beyond the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament. Henry Barclay Sweet was a distinguished professor of divinity at Cambridge University in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He wrote books on a number of biblical subjects, including the Septuagint. Like everyone else in his day, He thought the Septuagint was a loose and sloppy translation of the Masoretic text. So in most of his writings, he's not very complimentary towards the Septuagint. Nevertheless, he acknowledged that most of the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. Not only that, but he recognized the tremendous influence of the Septuagint had on the language and the thought patterns of the New Testament itself. In his introduction to the Old Testament in Greek, he wrote this. The quotations from the Septuagint by no means represent the extent of the influence exerted upon the New Testament by the Alexandrian version of the Septuagint. The careful student of the Gospels and of St. Paul is 
met at every turn by words and phrases which cannot be fully understood without reference to their earlier use in the Greek Old Testament. The Alexandrian version of the Old Testament has left its mark on every part of the New Testament, even in chapters and books where it's not directly cited. It is not too much to say that in its literary form and expression, the New Testament would have been a widely different book had it been written by authors who knew the Old Testament only in the original, or who knew it in a Greek version other than that of the Septuagint. Now I want to give you just a few examples of what Dr. Sweet is talking about. That's because much of the influence of the Septuagint is hidden to us when we read the Bible in English. This is particularly so because our Old Testaments are normally translated from the Masoretic text. So we have no way of knowing that a given New Testament term or phrase comes out of the Septuagint unless we have a copy of the Septuagint to compare it to. To illustrate, when most of us hear the word church, we immediately think of it as a New Testament term. And indeed it is in our English Bibles. However, the Greek word ecclesia, which is translated as church, actually is used 79 times in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. Jesus and his apostles were merely using a term that was already familiar to the Greek-speaking Jews. Another example is the word agape. As you know, agape is one of the Greek words for love. Many commentators go into profound discussions about the use of the word agape in the New Testament. They correctly state that this word was seldom used in classical Greek writings. However, then go on to say that agape was therefore a special word for Christian love, a type of love the world doesn't have. When they make statements like that, commentators reveal their own ignorance about the Septuagint. Greek word agape is the word the translators of the Septuagint normally used to translate the word love from Hebrew. They use it for every kind of love from romantic love to love of wrong things. Jesus and his apostles were simply using a term the Greek-speaking Jews were very familiar with from the Septuagint. Now, I would go on and on about the dependency of the New Testament on the Septuagint for its terminology. I could do this for 
a very long time. I really could. Words such as grace, angel, bishop, presbyter, and Hades were all terms that the translators of the Septuagint had chosen to translate corresponding Hebrew words, even though they had other choices of words to use. In fact, in inspiring the New Testament to be written in Conic Greek instead of Classical Greek, God was simply following the decision that I believe he made when he providentially provided the Septuagint for the Greek-speaking world. If we reject God's hand being behind the Septuagint, then we have to say that the Septuagint translators just happened to use the same style of Greek that the New Testament writers would later use some 300 plus years in the future. Even though it was an unheard of thing when the Septuagint was made. Another very important link between the New Testament and the Septuagint concerns the use of the divine name Yahweh or Jehovah written in Hebrew as four consonants Y-H-W-H That name is used around 6,800 times in the Masoretic text far more than any other name in the Old Testament yet the translators of the Septuagint made the decision not to try to come up with a Greek version of the divine name of God. They simply used the titles Lord or God to replace it. Now, I know many, many people who use this as a condemnation of both the Greek Septuagint as well as the English versions of the Old Testament. Now, the thing is, if that was simply a man-made decision, then we would expect to find that Jesus would have set things straight when he came. I mean, after all, he purposefully ignored the human traditions of the Jewish religious leaders and condemned them for creating their own man-made traditions. Yet we find that Jesus never once uses the divine name Yahweh nor do any of the New Testament writers. So it must not have been a 
human decision to switch from the name Yahweh to simply using the titles of God and Lord. And it began with the Septuagint. You see, this is another reason why I believe that the translation of the Septuagint was divinely guided by God. Because all scripture is inspired. One of the strongest apostolic endorsements of the Septuagint is found in Paul's second letter to Timothy. He says, From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that man, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that is, again, Second Timothy. And it's chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. What scriptures would Timothy have known from childhood? Surely it was the Septuagint. Timothy was from the Roman colony of Lystra, situated in Greek-speaking Galatia. And not only that, but his father was a Greek Gentile that the Septuagint was the Bible used by the Jews in Galatia is confirmed by the fact that Paul quotes from the Septuagint when he writes to the Galatians. For example, in Galatians 3.13, he writes this, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now that is what the Septuagint says in Deuteronomy chapter 21-23. However, the Masoretic text in Deuteronomy 21-23 merely says, He that is hanged is accursed of God. No mention is made of a tree at all. So when Paul told Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, he was actually speaking about the Septuagint, the only scriptures that Timothy knew. In pointing that out, I'm not denying to the Masoretic text the title of the Word of God. Because both the Septuagint and the Masoretic texts are man's imperfect copies of God's perfect word. However, Paul not only used the Septuagint, but he gave it his specific apostolic endorsement 
in his words to Timothy. During the days of Jesus, and for the most of the first century, the Jews fully embraced the Septuagint. We have seen how the Christian church embraced the Septuagint as their Old Testament. But we should not forget that during the days of Jesus and for the most of the first century, the Jews fully embraced the Septuagint as well. How else could Paul and the other apostles have preached to the Greek-speaking Jews in Palestine and across the Mediterranean world? The New Testament, however, provides solid evidence of the high status of the Septuagint among Palestinian Jews in Jesus' day. As I have mentioned, when Jesus read from Isaiah at the synagogue in Nazareth, he read from the Septuagint, showing that it was being used in the Greek-speaking synagogues of his day in Galilee. Not only that, but as I mentioned, on two occasions, when Jesus was rebuking the Jewish religious leaders, he quoted verses directly from the Septuagint, and he used those verses against the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, his rebukes actually turned on the particular wording of the Septuagint. Yet on neither occasion do the religious leaders counter him by saying that he was quoting something that was not in the scriptures. If the religious leaders viewed the Septuagint either as corrupt or as having an inferior status to the Masoretic text, then they surely would have said something about it. Furthermore, it would have hardly made sense for Jesus to quote it to them if he knew that they didn't accept it as scripture. A similar situation occurred again when Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. In his long address to the Sanhedrin, where he goes through the history of unfaithful Israel, he quotes the scriptures to them repeatedly from the Septuagint. In many of these quotes, the 
The Septuagint and the Masoretic texts read similarly. However, in other ones, the fact he is quoting from the Septuagint is very noticeable. For example, in Acts 7, 42 and 43, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness O house of Israel you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan images which you made to worship and I will carry you away beyond Babylon there Stephen is quoting from the book of Amos chapter 5 verses 25 through 27 and this is right out of the Septuagint in the Masoretic text Amos 5 25 through 27 reads like this did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years? O house of Israel, you also carried Sekuth, your king, and Cheon, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus. So you can see that there is a considerable difference between how Stephen quotes the passage there and how it reads in the Masoretic text. Earlier in his address, Stephen had told the Sanhedrin, Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives unto him, 75 people. And that's in Acts 7 verse 14. And that's the number of people that the Septuagint states in Exodus 1 5 that went down to Egypt. However, Exodus 1 5 in the Masoretic text says that 70 people went down. Now, Stephen was on trial for his life. He would have hardly quoted the Septuagint to his judges in the Sanhedrin if they were unfamiliar with the Septuagint or if these Jewish leaders didn't accept the Septuagint as scripture. The judges of the Sanhedrin flew into a rage at what Stephen said, but although they were outraged, they never once said anything about him quoting false scriptures to them. That's because 
they didn't view the Septuagint as false or anything other than the inspired Word of God. Now what about the Ethiopian eunuch? When the Holy Spirit sent Philip to him, the Ethiopian was in his chariot reading from the book of Isaiah. Now, was he reading from the Masoretic text? Or was he perhaps reading from the Masoretic or the account in Acts lets us know the place in scripture which he reads was this he was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before his shearer is silent so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now, that's, again, Acts chapter 8, verse 32 and 33. The Ethiopian was reading from Isaiah 53, 7-8. Now verse 7 of Isaiah 53 reads very similarly in both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. However, verse 8 reads differently between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Septuagint reads like this in his humiliation his justice was taken away and who will declare his generation for his life is taken away from the earth which is exactly how the Ethiopian read it However, the Masoretic text reads, He was taken away from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? You see, his life is taken from the earth. This is exactly how the Ethiopian read it. The Ethiopian unit was obviously not reading from the Masoretic text. Even though the Masoretic text has a similar message, it differs in wording from what the Ethiopian was reading. 
The Masoretic text reads, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Now, the Masoretic text has similar message it differs in wording from what the Ethiopian was reading but remember at the time he was reading the Ethiopian was not a Christian he was a Jewish proselyte reading from the Septuagint just as all of the other Greek speaking Jews were doing Most of us well remember the famous passage in Acts about the Bereans. The scriptures say, Then the Bereans immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find whether these things were so. So when it says the Bereans search the scriptures daily, have you ever thought about what scriptures that it's talking about? See, Berea is located in Greece. So without a doubt, it was the Septuagint that they were searching. There was no other Greek translation of the Old Testament. There were also witnesses outside of the New Testament. The New Testament is not our only witness to the widespread use of the Septuagint by the Jews in the first century. As I mentioned last night that Philo was a prominent Jew who lived in Alexandria during the lifetime of Jesus. Philo not only used the Septuagint, but as I described to you in the previous episode, he corroborated his special origin as was described in the letter of Aristides. And all the evidence would show that the unbelieving Jews continued to accept the Septuagint all the way until the end of the first century. Josephus is also a witness to this fact. 
he was not only an unbelieving Jew, but he was also a Pharisee, a priestly descendant on his father's side, and a Jewish royal descendant on his mother's side. His most famous historical work is entitled The Antiquity of the Jews, and it was written around 93 or 94 A.D., in it, not only does Josephus quote primarily from the Septuagint, but he also affirms the historical account of Aristius. Josephus states this about the Septuagint after the translators had finished their work. He says, quote, Moreover, they all, both the priest and the most ancient of the elders and the principal men of their people, made it their request that since the translation was happily finished, it might continue in the state it now was and might not be altered. And when they all affirm that decision of theirs, they urge that if any one observed either anything superfluous in it or anything omitted, that he would take a view of it again and have it laid before them and corrected. This was a wise action of theirs, that when the thing was judged to have been well done, it might continue forever. End quote. So, even at the end of the first century, the Jews held a very high view of the Septuagint. However, eventually the unbelieving Jews did reject the Septuagint. Everything suddenly changed within just a few decades after the close of the first century. It was at this time that the Jewish religious leaders totally rejected the Septuagint. In fact, they commissioned a Jewish proselyte named Aquila to make a New Greek translation using the Masoretic text as its basis. But why? Why would the Jews reject a translation that they had held in great esteem for nearly 300 years? The answer to this is quite simple. The Christians were nailing them with the Septuagint 
particularly as to the Messianic prophecies. So, we see that so many of the Messianic prophecies are found only in the Septuagint, not in the Masoretic. I'm talking about prophecies about the Incarnation, the Crucifixion, the Deity of Christ, the Gentiles turning to God, and the Virgin Birth. Christians were successfully proving the truth of Christianity to both the Jews and the Gentiles based upon these Old Testament prophecies. So now let's look at some of these prophecies that are found only in the Septuagint. Concerning the Incarnation, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 says, When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Psalms chapter 40 verse 6 in the Masoretic text says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. So, the Septuagint contains an important prophecy about the Incarnation that is simply lost in the Masoretic text. In the Septuagint, it is foretold that God would prepare a body for Christ place of this key prophecy, the Masoretic text merely says that my ears you have opened. Another part of the Messianic prophecies that Septuagint has that caused the unbelieving Jews to reject the Septuagint and want to create a new text concerns the crucifixion. Psalms 22 verse 17 in the Septuagint reads, For many dogs surrounded me, an assembly of evildoers enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, that Messianic psalm in the Masoretic text reads this way. It says, For dogs have encompassed me, 
a company of evildoers have enclosed me. Like a lion, they are at my hands and my feet. Another obvious prophecy about the crucifixion of Christ is completely lost in the Masoretic text. Another important messianic prophecy concerns the divinity of Christ and the deity of Christ. This prophecy is quoted in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 6. It says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, says, let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1.6 is actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 43. Well, the Septuagint reads, Rejoice ye heavens with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. Rejoice, all ye Gentiles, with his people. The Masoretic text of Deuteronomy 32.43 reads this way. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. <laughs> now, in this instance, an important messianic prophecy about the deity and divinity of Christ is just completely missing in the Masoretic text. Another prof or, or part of messianic prophecy that is in the Septuagint that calls the unbelieving Jews to reject it are the prophecies about the Gentiles accepting the Messiah. Another important messianic prophecy is again that the Gentiles would trust in Christ. And Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 tells us this. It says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, And then he quotes from Isaiah 42, chapter 1 through 4, ending with the words a bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will trust now Isaiah 42 3 and 4 in the Masoretic text says this, A 
bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now, although the wording is similar between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, the Masoretic text misses the big point of that prophecy, and that is that the Gentiles would trust in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, the Jews were actually the cause of God's name being blasphemed. And Paul rebukes the unbelieving Jews in Romans chapter 2, quoting from Isaiah 52 verse 5 to them, saying this, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That is as it is written. Now Paul's paraphrasing Isaiah 52.5 as it's found in the Septuagint, which reads like this, On account of you, my name is continually blasphemed among the Gentiles. So again, the unbelieving Jews were the cause of God's name being blasphemed. However, in the Masoretic text, the Jews are not the ones who are the cause of this blasphemy because it simply says this, My name is continually, every day, blasphemed. So you see, in the Masoretic text, all blame on the Jews has been completely removed from this verse. Another huge messianic prophecy that is probably the one prophecy that bothered the unbelieving Jews more than any of the rest of the messianic prophecies was the prophecy concerning the virgin birth of the Messiah found in Isaiah 7.14. Now Matthew quotes this prophecy in chapter 1 of his gospel in verses 22 and 23. It says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Now, if you happen to have a copy of a Jewish Bible translated from the Masoretic text, such as the one put out by the Jewish Publication Society of America, then you'll find that it does not say the virgin shall be with child, but it says the young woman shall be with child. 
So did the Jews deliberately change something here? Actually, no, they didn't. The Hebrew word in the Masoretic text is that is translated young woman is the word Alma. And indeed, the normal meaning of Alma is young woman. There is also a masculine equivalent of Alma, which is normally translated as young man. Now, in the scriptures, the Jewish scholars say that Alma can refer to a young single woman who is a virgin, or it can refer to a young single woman who is not a virgin. They also say it can also refer to a young married woman who is not a virgin, but who has not yet given birth to a child. Jewish Hebrew scholars say that today, and the rabbis were saying that exact same thing back before the year 150. Now, if Christians had remained steadfast in the use of the Septuagint throughout the centuries, then this would be a non-issue to us. If the rabbis and scholars are explaining the term correctly to us, then it's further evidence that God was overseeing the translation of the Septuagint and that he moved the 70 to translate the word Alma as virgin. But why did the translators of the Septuagint render this verse the virgin shall be with child. You see, the Greek word used there is parthenios, which means a physical virgin. To me, the only answer is divine providence. Absent God's direction, saying a virgin would give birth to a son would go against absolutely all logic and reason and reason excuse me however since western christians eventually threw their lot in with the masoretic text then they are now forced to insist that the hebrew alma is properly translated as virgin in our Christian Old Testament. Some very conservative Christians insist that Alma primarily means a virgin in a biological sense. On the other hand, most conservative Christian scholars will admit that Alma doesn't necessarily mean a physical virgin, but that it can. They then go on to say, Isaiah said that the birth of this child would be a sign. But a young woman given birth wouldn't be a sign, since it's an everyday occurrence. Therefore, Alma has to mean a biological virgin here. 
that argument just doesn't hold up. Because if you read the entire passage, then you'll see that there was more to the sign than simply the birth of a son. Reading from the Masoretic text, Isaiah says, Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Isaiah was given this prophecy to King Ahaz. So the big sign that King Ahaz would have been excited to hear was that the land that he dreaded, i.e. his major enemy, would be forsaken by both her kings before this child would reach the age of accountability. This accords perfectly with other places in the Old Testament when God gives a sign to the Israelites or to one of their rulers. I'll give you some examples. 1 Samuel chapter 2.34 says, Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons. On Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. Isaiah, or excuse me, not Isaiah, 1 Samuel 14.10 says, But if they say thus, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hands, and this will be a sign to us. And again, that was 1 Samuel 14.10. 2 Kings 19.29 says, This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year sow and reap. Plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. In short, the fact that the land King Ahaz dreaded would be abandoned by both its kings was a sign indeed. He didn't need a virgin birth for there, for there to be a sign from God. Finally, I need to mention that there is a Hebrew word that specifically means virgin in the biological sense. That word is Bethula. It specifically means a virgin. It's a special meaning in contrast with Alma is demonstrated in the passage in Genesis when Abraham's servant has gone to find a wife for Isaac. After he meets Rebekah, he later tells Laban what he had prayed for. Now, I'm reading from the Jewish translation of the Masoretic text in Genesis 24:43, where the servant says, Behold, I stand by the fountain of water, 
and let it come to pass that the maiden what comes forth to draw to whom I shall say and he continues the word translated maiden there is Alma Abraham's servant certainly is not using Alma in the sense of a young unmarried woman her virginity would be prized but not necessarily essential However, in the same chapter, we read this about Rebekah. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin. No man had known her. And that's Genesis 24:16. Now in that verse, it is specifically saying that she was not just a young woman, but also a physical virgin. Now this time, the Bible uses the word Bethula, not Alma. So we would expect Isaiah to have used Bethula in Isaiah 7:14 if he was wanting to make it clear that it was a virgin who would give birth. And that's why I feel that the rendering of Alma in Isaiah 7:14 in the Septuagint was through divine providence. Because if Alma obviously meant virgin in Isaiah 7.14, then why would Matthew have quoted it from the Septuagint and not from the Masoretic? Matthew quotes from the Masoretic a higher percentage of the time than any of the other New Testament writers. Yet when he quotes Isaiah 7.14, quotes from the Septuagint, not the Masoretic text. Because the Septuagint rendered the Hebrew word Alma by the Greek word Parthenos, meaning a biological virgin. Now, as I said, I think this passage was the prophecy that irked the Jewish rabbis the most. Because of this prophecy, Coupled with the other messianic prophecies in the Septuagint, the Jewish religious leaders decided to just jettison the Septuagint. These rabbis would stop at nothing to silence the gospel. After all, it was their very forefathers who had put Jesus to death. These were the ones that Jesus refers to in Revelation chapter 3 verse 9 as the synagogue of Satan. So they ordered the Greek synagogues to quit using the Septuagint. And as I previously mentioned, they, commend, they commissioned the Jewish proselyte Aquila to make a new Greek translation of the Old Testament. This time, from the Masoretic text family. I say that because the subject comes up in a couple of the early Christian writings in addressing the Jews. Justin Martyr writes addressing the Jews, But you and your teachers venture to declare that in the prophecy of Isaiah, 
it does not say, Behold, the virgin will conceive, but rather, Behold, the young woman will conceive and bear a son. Furthermore, you explain the prophecy as if it referred to Hezekiah, who was your king. Therefore, I will endeavor to discuss shortly this point in opposition to you. And that was Justin Martyr uh, around the year 150. Later, another Jewish proselyte, Theodosian, the Ephesian, made another Greek translation from the Proto-Masoretic. About 20 years later, Irenaeus says this about both translations. The Lord himself saved us, giving us the sign of the virgin. But it is not as some allege, who are now presuming to expound the scriptures as, Behold, a young woman will conceive and bring forth a son. As Theodosian, the Ephesian, has translated, and Aquila of Pontus, both Jewish proselytes. So, simply by dropping the Septuagint and switching to the Masoretic text, the unbelieving Jews were about to wipe out this prophecy about the virgin birth plus many other prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. Now, before leaving this subject, I want to mention that if you look up Isaiah 7.14 in the KJV or in practically any English Bible, you will find that it reads virgin, not young woman. This is because... This prophecy is such an extremely important one that most Christians would never tolerate a translation that said young woman. So even after Western Christians switch from the Septuagint to the Masoretic text, they continue to translate Isaiah 7.14 with the words, The virgin shall be with child. Now, there were contests between the early, the early Christians and unbelieving Jews, which results sorry, I got tongue-tied, which resulted in the Septuagint being the Old Testament of the Christians. And the Masoretic text, or better yet, the Proto-Masoretic, was the Old Testament of the unbelieving Jews. So, what we witness from the middle of the second century on is that the Septuagint remained the Old Testament of the church, and the Masoretic text became the Old Testament of the unbelieving Jews. The Jews abandoned the Septuagint, and Greek-speaking Jews began using the newly made translations of the Masoretic text. 
three different Greek translations of the Masoretic text were made in the second century and endorsed by the Jewish rabbis. Those of Aquila, Theodosian, and Symmachius. The early Christians talk a lot about this phenomenon and of the Jews rejecting the Septuagint and endorsing these new translations. For example, in speaking to Trypho the Jew, Justin Martyr says this, I am far from putting reliance on your Jewish teachers who refuse to admit that the translation made by the 70 elders who were with Ptolemy of the Egyptians is a correct one. I wish you to observe that the Jewish teachers have altogether taken away many scriptures from the translation made by those 70 elders who were with Ptolemy with the Septuagint and by which this very man who was crucified is proved to have been set forth expressly as both God and man. Shall I not in this matter too urge you not to believe your Jewish teachers who venture to assert that the translation given by your seventy elders who were with Ptolemy the king of the Egyptians is untrue in various aspects. Justin Martyr. So the Jews were saying that the Septuagint was both false and corrupt, and the Christians were standing behind the Septuagint. The Septuagint had now been around for about 350 years. The Greek-speaking Jews and later the Christians had been using the Septuagint for so long that nobody any longer realized that it had come from a different text family than the Masoretic text. The leading rabbis knew, or should have known this. As far as anyone knows, the Hebrew text family from which the Septuagint had been translated was still around in the first century. It is quite possible that the scrolls kept in the temple were of this text family. If that is the case, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 would have made it easier for the scribes and Pharisees to abandon this text at the end of the first century. We know there were still Orthodox Jewish Christians around in the middle of the second century, but we do not know if any of them were Hebrew-speaking. There was a heretical sect in existence known as the Ebionites. These were professing Jewish Christians, but they accepted Jesus only as the Jewish Messiah, not as the divine Son of God. One of the Ebionites, a man named Symmachus, made a Greek translation of the Masoretic text, as I've mentioned. 
By the mid-2nd century, there were no Hebrew-speaking Gentile Christians that we know of. By then, Hebrew was nearly a dead language, spoken primarily by the Jewish rabbis and some Palestinian Jews. So the argument that was used by the Jewish rabbis in the middle of the 2nd century was this. They, the Jews, were in possession of the quote-unquote original Hebrew represented by the Masoretic text, and the Septuagint contains a lot of prophecies and other material that is not in the original Hebrew. Some of the unbelieving rabbis of the second century probably believed this, I think, however, that the other rabbis knew the truth. However, the Christians did not know the truth. They couldn't read Hebrew. So all they could surmise was that if the Hebrew text of the second century did not contain the Messianic prophecies found in the Septuagint, then the Jewish religious leaders must have removed these prophecies from the Hebrew text. Because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know today that the Jewish rabbis didn't have to remove these prophecies from the text. They were able to eliminate a handful of key messianic prophecies simply by discarding the Septuagint and any corresponding Hebrew manuscripts and making the Masoretic text the one and only text accepted by Judaism. Continuing our story, during the second century and beyond, the Jews heaped scorn on the Christians, accusing them of using a corrupt Old Testament. Turn, as I said, the Christians also accused the Jews of altering the scriptures. Around the year 170 or 180, Irenaeus wrote in support of the Septuagint and against the translations of Aquila, Theodosian, and Simaicus. He says, These scriptures the Septuagint have been translated with great fidelity and by the grace of God and from these scriptures God has prepared and formed our faith towards his son. He has preserved to us the unadulterated scriptures in Egypt where the house of Jacob once flourished fleeing from the famine in Canaan. This is also where our Lord was preserved when he fled from the persecution set in action by Herod. Furthermore, this translation of the scriptures was made prior to our Lord's descent to earth. It came into being before the Christians came into existence. Accordingly, these men are proved to be truly impudent and presumptuous who now desire to make various new translations 
They have done this because we refute them out of these scriptures and force them to acknowledge the coming of the Son of God. But our faith is steadfast, it's honest, and it's the only true one. It has clear proof from these scriptures that were translated in the way I have related. The preaching of the church is without addition to the scriptures. For the apostles are of more ancient date than all these men, Aquila and Theodosius. And they agree with this translation of the Septuagint. This translation harmonizes with the tradition of the apostles. For Peter, John, Matthew, Paul, and the rest in turn, as well as their followers, quoted all prophecies just as the translation of the seventy elders contains them. And that was from Irenaeus around the year 180. Around the year 198, Tertullian spoke for the whole church when he wrote, We read that every scripture is suitable for edification and is divinely inspired. So it appears to have been rejected by the Jews for that very reason. Just like they have rejected nearly all the other portions of Scripture that speak of Christ. Nor, of course, is this fact surprising. Of course they do not receive some Scriptures that speak of Him who they did not receive. For they did not receive Him even when He was here in person, speaking in their presence. So, Tertullian understood Paul's words to Timothy to be talking about the Septuagint. Now, Origen, who lived between A.D. 185 and 254, was the greatest scholar of the early church. He also was the first Christian textual scholar. He was constantly comparing different texts of the New Testament as well as the different texts of the Septuagint. Since he lived in the time period when the Jews were attacking the Christian Old Testament, he took it upon himself to learn Hebrew so that he could read the Hebrew text that the Jews were using in his day. He prepared an enormous work known as as the Hex Opla. It was a six-column edition of the Old Testament, where Origen listed side-by-side side the following text. First, the Masoretic text in Hebrew. Second, the Hebrew of the Masoretic text transliterated into Greek characters. Third, the version of Aquila. Fourth, Symmachus. Fifth, the Septuagint. And sixth, 
Indian Ocean. This way, Origen could compare exactly where the Septuagint varied from the Masoretic and these other translations based on the Masoretic text. After carefully comparing them all, he wrote this. In many of the other sacred books, I sometimes found more in our copies in the Septuagint than in the Hebrew of the Masoretic text. Sometimes I found less. When we notice such things, are we to abruptly reject as spurious the copies that we use in our churches? Should we command the brotherhood to put away the sacred books that are currently used among them? Should we coax the Jews and persuade them to give us copies that will be free from tampering and forgery? Are we so... Are we to suppose that the providence that has ministered to the edification of all the churches of Christ in the sacred, sacred scriptures had no concern for those who were bought with a price, the ones for whom Christ died? End quote. So Origen had all of the information before him and he never wavered one iota in his support for the Septuagint, the Bible of the Apostles and of the Church. Ironically, in many supposed scholarly books and articles today, theologians say that Origen prepared the Hexapla because he could see the deficiencies of the Septuagint, and he recognized it as a defective text. All I can say to that is that those men are revealing that they have never, ever actually read Origen's writings. Origen was a strong defender of the Septuagint not a critic of it. He prepared the Hexapla so that he could argue more efficiently and more effectively when addressing the unbelieving Jews. Origen argued that if the church was founded on the wrong set of scriptures, then the Holy Spirit must not have had much concern for those whom Christ bought with his blood. Now, when I read Origen's argument for the first time, I realized that he was right. It sums the whole matter up, and in my opinion, is unanswerable. Now, Expanding Origen's argument a little further, either God did or did not prepare a Bible for the Gentiles. God foreknew and foreordained the coming of Christ. He foreknew and foreordained that the gospel would be taken to all nations 
beginning with the country surrounding the Mediterranean. Now either God did or did not prepare a Bible for the Gentiles. There's not really any middle ground. In the end, we know that there ended up being a Bible available for the Gentiles, and it was the Septuagint. And we know that the apostles used this Old Testament Bible to reach the Gentiles, to reach the Jews who lived outside of Palestine, and to reach the majority of the Jews living in Palestine. The only questions are, was the translation and spread of the Septuagint simply a man-made affair? And Jesus and the apostles used it because it was their only option? Or was it a translation prompted by God and provided by him to the Gentile world and the largest I mean and the larger Jewish world in preparation for the gospel? Now from listening to the first episode on the Septuagint and the first part of this episode, you already know where I stand on the matter. So I'd like to read to you what the other side says. I'm not talking about the Septuagint deniers. I'm talking about scholars who recognize that Jesus and the apostles primarily quoted from the Septuagint. These scholars recognized that the church was founded upon the Septuagint as its Bible. Yet, they do not believe that the Septuagint was providentially made available to the ancient world. These scholars believe that it was an inferior man-made translation that just so happened to be there when Jesus and the apostles came on the scene. One such scholar was Gleason Archer. He was a professor of biblical languages at Fuller Theological Seminary from 1948 to 1965. From 1965 to 1986, he served as a professor of Old Testament and Semitics at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was a strong believer and defender in the inerrancy of Scripture. If you have very many conservative evangelical reference works around, you'll probably find his name as one of the contributors. As I mentioned before, Gleason Archer was one of the authors of the book Old Testament Quotations in the New Testament. Archer was a strong supporter of the Masoretic text, and like everyone else in his day, he thought the Septuagint was a loose, defective translation of the Masoretic text. Yet he readily acknowledges from having done a painstaking comparison of every Old Testament quote in the New Testament 
that Jesus and his apostles nearly always quote from the Septuagint. This is how he explains things. So basically, those are the two views. And as far as I know, the only two options before us Odd was behind the Septuagint and he guided both the selection of the Hebrew text that was used and the translation of it into Greek, or it was a man-made work that just happened to be there and despite its shortcomings, the apostles had little choice but to use it to reach the Gentile world. Now which one makes more sense to you? Do you think God did not foresee the need for a faithful translation of Scripture in Greek if Christianity was going to be taken to the Gentile? Or do you think he foresaw the need but just decided not to do anything about it and just let matters take their own course? To me, the early Christian view and the original Jewish view is the only one that makes any sense. Now that view is, of course, that the Septuagint was a providentially directed translation, and it was intended by God to be a faithful and authoritative translation worthy to be used by the apostles to found Christ's church and to take the gospel to the whole world. Now, we have pretty much come to the end of our time for tonight's episode, although we have not finished covering all the information. We are almost at two hours again, and I promised that we would not be going over two hours. Although there is more information and we could go over two hours, I want to make sure that everyone is able to listen to each of these episodes and to be able to absorb the information that I've given in each one of them. Therefore, if I go longer than two hours, I'm worried that people will either not listen to the entire episode or at the very least not be able to retain all the information, especially towards the end if we go longer than two hours. So, we're going to end tonight's program, and we're going to have one more episode on the Septuagint. The next episode will be on the question of if the Septuagint was a defective Bible, would 
God leave that situation uncorrected. Now, I think that we've pretty much shown that the Septuagint is not a defective translation, and it uh, is the translation that both Jesus and the apostles used the most in quoting the Old Testament, but also it was the translation that the early church used and accepted and believed to be the providential word of God that was created for the Christian church and also for the spread of the gospel to the Gentile world as well as the Greek-speaking Jews. Now, we are also going to be covering in the final episode why and when the church stopped using the Septuagint and who exactly made the decision to use another translation or more accurately a another text family to create a translation of the Christian Bible. Now, we're also going to begin tomorrow night's program by finishing the talk that we we're having at the end of tonight's episode, we're going to finish the discussion on the Archer theory that we were talking about. And of course, Archer was a Christian scholar from the year 19, I think 19. The 1940s to the 1980s. But we're going to finish the uh, discussion on the Arthur theory, and then we are going to, we're going to go to talking about the dishonest manner in which the Masoretic text came into the church. Now, brothers and sisters, I thank you all for taking the time to listen to another episode of Return of the Historic Fate as we have further learned about the Septuagint text of the Old Testament and how it was used by the 
Greeks, well, actually by the Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews in the first century, during the time of Christ and the Apostles, as well as by Christ and the Apostles, and also used by the Christian Church, the anti-Nicene Christians, for the first 300 years. Tomorrow night, we're going to see the dishonest manner in which the Masoretic text came into the church in the year 384. So, again, I thank you all for listening and for the Next Chapter Radio Network and Return of the Historic Faith. I am Pastor Jeremy Anderson saying good night and grace and peace.